Hello and welcome. On behalf of CME Outfitters, thank you for joining us for today's CMEO briefcase titled Switching ART Due to Treatment Resistance. This program has been supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. I'm Dr. Debbie Hagens, HIV Program Director and District Medical Director of the Coastal Health Centers in Savannah, Georgia. I'll be the moderator for today's briefcase. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Serana Siegel-Moore, Director of Infectious Diseases at New York Presbyterian Queens and Professor of Clinical Medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine of Cornell University in New York City, New York. Thank you. Dr. Siegel Morum. I'm looking forward to today's discussion. The goal of this educational activity is to empower learners to implement ART switching strategies to overcome HIV treatment resistance. Let's jump right in with our case. So let's do that, Debbie, and let's uh, see uh, what happens to our patient here. So we're going to talk about Luis, who is 35-year-old male who presents with acute HIV. Now, Luis's history is very important. He has taken oral FTC, TDF, uh, or Truvada for PrEP for six years, but he has struggled with adherence due to his frequent travel. Uh, a sideline comment, I think, for everyone in our audience listening today uh, giving FTC TDF for PrEP is the gold standard uh, that we've been using. And we all know uh, from the studies and follow-up studies, you really need to have a minimum of four times weekly adherence in order to provide maximal protection. So we know that Louise could be below that threshold. Um, he was switched to uh, cabotegravir long-acting injectable for PrEP about four months ago due to these adherence issues, which I think is understandable. Um, what I think we all need to know is that that strategy is definitely supported by HPTN 083 and 084. Uh, the adherence uh, was better, uh, and as a result, there was less seroconversions in the cabotegravir arm uh, than uh, in the FTDF arm. Now, he did take his 30-day oral cabotegravir lead-in that was followed by two loading doses and a maintenance dose, which was administered last week with an HIV test sent out the same day. Now, we have a small problem. Last week's test results, we see here that his antigen antibody was reactive. Uh, his antibody, HIV-1-2 antibody, was negative, so there was a discrepancy. and uh, as per guidelines, there was an HIV RNA level that was sent that had detection at 9.2 single copies per ml. Obviously, this was repeated and confirmed. Uh, the antigen-antibody test was again reactive. The antibody test was negative. And again, there's low-level detection at 8.6 single copies uh, per ml. So, Debbie, I think I'm going to pass it to you. We have some questions for our audience. I do. And I think before we go on, uh, Serrano, you know, as I look at this case and I look at the fact that he's been on PrEP for six years, so he started when he was in his 20s, and, you know, it certainly raises the 
question about how long do we keep somebody on prep? You know, how do we discuss, you know, the importance of maintaining this so that this doesn't happen? And while that is a topic for another conversation, I think it's something I just wanted to just point out. So our questions are, according to DHHS guidelines, what next steps are recommended for people with confirmed acute HIV taking CAB-LA for PrEP. And your choices are A, delay ART initiation until HIV genotype test results return, B, delay ART until seroconversion, C, initiate ART with instant containing regimen, D, initiate ART with boosted darunavir with TAP, or TDF, or FTC, or 3TC, or E, I don't know. Well, the correct answer is D, initiate ART with boosted dibunavir with TDF or TAP or FTC or 3TC. So it would either be two pills, three pills, depending on what you're going to give them. And the reason is because in the recent updated guidelines with the DHHS, anyone who has been on PrEP with CAB-LA, you're supposed to go to a boosted DNA, I mean a boosted uh, PI regimen uh, with the Runavir with either um, 3TC or FTC with uh, TDF or TAP until you have your resistance results back. And because uh, ART was initiated at the time of this visit, this was the correct choice. Excellent. So we'll go to our next slide. And as you have shared, the guidelines have changed because of the concern around the use of a long-acting agent uh, and possible resistance, which we'll get into a little bit more. Um, so what happens with HIV? Why do we need to talk about resistance again? Uh, you and I, Debbie, have been around for a very, very long time, and we used to talk about this all the time. Uh, but as we've gotten, I think, in the new era of antiretrovirals, this has not been as much a conversation because of the very successful use either of the second-generation integrase inhibitors uh, or boosted PIs like darunavir. So we've been in a really good spot. But resistance is always a topic of conversation. So as you can see uh, on this particular slide, we are dealing with HIV, which is a retrovirus. So as you go from RNA to DNA back to RNA, there's a lot of proofreading uh, mistakes and errors leading to mutations. Now, there are a number of different ways that you can get there. First is what I think many people are accustomed to, uh, which is acquired drug resistance. Those are typically people uh, living with HIV on some antiretroviral regimens, uh, and they end up with resistant virus. So how does that happen? Uh, it can happen through adherence uh, issues. Uh, for example, our patient uh, is a prime example of somebody we would be very concerned as we transition him from PrEP uh, into antiretroviral therapy. Um, the others are really not as much um, something that the patients would themselves be conscious of. 
Uh, one is drug interactions, and a classic one that I'll just throw out uh, is the divalent cations and the integrase inhibitors. Uh, they chelate them, uh, rendering them not fully active. So not telling us that they're taking something potentially with a drug interaction can lead to virologic uh, escape and uh, resistance mutations. The other is bioavailability. Again, a classic example is the use of antacids at the same time as an integrase inhibitor, really minimizing the bioavailability. So patients may be very good about taking their medications on time, but having issues with other things taken together. Um, and the last is something that maybe we don't speak about as much anymore, but it's the food requirement and the bioavailability. And the classic example around that is rilpivirine, which is not a caloric requirement, but it requires a lot of food to be able to sit in the stomach and optimize bioavailability. So we could see how acquired drug resistance is not always an adherence issue. There are many things that we need to discuss uh, with our patients. Transmitted drug resistance uh, is unfortunate. You have people who uh, have never been on medications, yet they acquire uh, a virus from somebody who may have cycled through multiple regimens. So now they have new HIV, but multi-drug resistant HIV. So making it very challenging as opposed to the more straightforward uh, um, pan-susceptible HIV uh, that is easily fits into the guideline recommendations. Um, once these mutations build up over time, uh, let's say it's the adherence, the bioavailability, whichever one, or sometimes it could be a super infection, uh, you now have more and more mutations that pile on, making, I think, what we next choose uh, very complex. The paths to PrEP-resistant HIV, I think, um, are very interesting and very important. Um, but the good news, before we get into a lot of the details, they do not happen very often. Uh, compared to the number of people that are physically on either oral PrEP uh, with either FTC-TDF or FTC-TAF, uh, or those who are in studies and now, uh, in addition to studies on injectable cabotegravir, um, resistance, circonversion on medications and then resistance is not that common, but it is very important as PrEP becomes more and more uh, mainstream. So let's focus on oral PrEP for uh, a minute. Uh, as I mentioned, those are the standards of therapy. They're listed there. Uh, suboptimal adherence, Luis, is a good example of that. Again, it seems that that threshold has to be a minimum of four times a week, uh, not intermittent here and there. Um, those who break through and seroconvert frequently will be with wild-type virus because they just do not have enough, uh, certainly enough TDF around uh, to seroconvert with resistance. However, continued use of PrEP in undiagnosed HIV, remember, um, patients have to come for testing at least every three months. Um, if they're missing those windows, you're still taking PrEP, maybe intermittent, that's where we can run uh, into problems. So the most common mutations, as you would expect with TDF and uh, FTC, would be a K65R or M184B or possibly both. 
Um, in general, you would have high viral loads, uh, certainly not single copy viral loads. And usually we see our patients with typical seroconversion uh, type of symptoms. Um, they definitely have a detectable HIV uh, RNA. So again, not common, but important. And when you look at all the numbers, a uh, recent retrospective study, it probably occurs in less than 2% of everybody who's on PrEP. So small numbers, but important to know. Let's go to injectable PrEP with CAB. Um, it's a little bit more challenging because of the long-acting. And should we miss picking up a seroconversion? We now have these lower waning levels of cabotegravir. They're not enough to suppress virus, but just enough to put the pressure to elicit mutations. And some of the common ones uh, that we've seen, again, in not a lot of patients, are either the Q148R or the uh, N155H. Um, the what we've seen from studies and recently presented at Croy is low copies and a discrepancy between the antigen antibody test, the antibody test, and then of course you need that RNA, but you have to be able to go down to single copies, uh, which I think is very, very important. Um, so. One other thing that I want to uh, speak about very uh, quickly is this injectable PrEP um, seroconversion with the very low copies, more, uh, as we've put on the slide, more of a smoldering type of presentation, um, has an acronym. Uh, it's called Long-Acting Early Viral Inhibition Syndrome, or LEVI, L-E-V-I. Um, and it's associated with these diagnostic delays and unfortunately, you do end up uh, with mutations. Now, not many patients, again, very important because as Debbie just told us, it changes. The guidelines have changed because of this. You cannot start with an integrase inhibitor-based regimen. You have to go to a boosted darunavir regimen while you're waiting uh, for your uh, testing. So I'm going to turn it over to Debbie. Uh, to ask us a couple of more questions. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Serrano. So the question is, which of the following ART regimens is recommended for empiric initiation in people with no prior CAB-LA exposure who become infected with HIV while taking oral PrEP? A, BIC-TAF-FTC as a single tablet, B, another single tablet would be DTG3TC. The third option would be a single tablet, well, DTG, ABC, or 3TC. Or D, the Ravarine uh, TDF or 3TC, again, another single tablet option. Or E, I don't know. Okay, I guess everyone has answered. And the correct answer here is A, the single tablet regimen of a big tap and FTC. Let's talk about, after that question, what do you initiate when you have a PrEP breakthrough with HIV? And um, I think, I hope that everyone in that last tricky question picked up when you do not have CAB uh, for PrEP. 
That's why uh, BFTAF is the right answer. Uh, but if you do have CAP for PrEP, you know that the answer needs to be a boosted PI, uh, typically boosted uh, uh, darunavir. So looking at resistance testing, we know you have to do rapid treatment initiation. This is not a time where you're going to sit for weight resistance testing. That is why you are automatically going to go to a boosted darunavir regimen while you're waiting. Now, one of the things that's been spoken about when it comes to these CAB long-acting breakthroughs, again, not many patients, we are still trying to develop guidelines and having discussions at the investigator level, is what is our use for proviral resistance testing? Can we use it with these very low copies? And the guidelines give us a little bit of background. So they're talking about a next-generation genotypic uh, assay that analyzes proviral DNA. It can give you additional information when you are below the levels of classic detection. For many of us, it's 20 copies or 30 or could be 50. However, you cannot fully rely on these assays. They may not always pick up some of the archive mutations. You do need to interpret them with caution. Um, and all of this is really up for further investigation. So although we are suggesting you consider it because it is in the guidelines and it is under discussion, Let's be aware that there's a caveat. If they're not picking up mutations, it does not necessarily mean they're not there. So not very confidence boosting, but uh, we do have that as an additional option for us. Uh, we talked about empiric options. If you're taking oral PrEP, which is a traditional combination of BF-TAF, um, and that is really based on data from the registrational studies uh, with BFTAF, looking at people who did have some baseline mutations, uh, technically should not have gotten in for various reasons. Uh, they did get in, um, and we do have data from those investigational studies about continued activity and successful activity of BFTAF. Uh, in the setting of nucleoside resistance mutations. So that's why BFTAF stays there. However, exposure to CAB uh, long-acting for PrEP, that is a little bit problematic because you may have these added mutations that happen over time because you have these small copies. You may not be able to pick them up in routine testing, and you may end up administering the next CAB dose. Uh, and that's where we run into a little bit of trouble. So I think uh, we're all clear what to do, and we'll go right back to Luis. Um, so Luis got guideline-driven uh, treatment. He uh, received a single tablet regimen of boosted darunavir with cobicistat, TAF-FTC, and he came back three weeks later to discuss his resistance test and follow-up monitoring. And what Debbie said at the very beginning, I think, really underscores one of the major pieces of our conversation with Luis, which is not on the slide, but which you must discuss immediately. He could not take antiretrovirals for PrEP. Will he be able to take antiretrovirals for treatment, right? What happened with the adherence? What was motivating? What was the obstacle? What were the issues around that? So. I want to add that as a bullet point. Um, he's talking to us about GI side effects, which is very interesting. We all know that 
boosted darunavir is incredibly well tolerated, but be that as it may, we do need to uh, speak to him and his uh, experience. Uh, he doesn't want to take it, and as we know, you do need to take boosted darunavir with food, and he doesn't want to take it with food because he doesn't have an appetite. Um, we could go one of two ways here. Uh, we could really try to convince him and work with him and push him to eat more. Um, I myself, um, I don't know that I find that a helpful strategy uh, because uh, frequently patients will say yes, yes, and yes, uh, and then they will turn around and go back to their lives and continue experiencing the same challenges. So I'd like to understand better but also embrace what his uh, experience is and maybe see if we can give him other options. So he definitely wants a single tablet. He does not give us more option than that. Um, we can do resistance testing at this point. Um, we see that the genotype at baseline, uh, there were no real mutations, so that's good. Uh, the question is, can we now go to maybe BFTAP? Smaller tablet, no food requirement. It is on that initial preferred uh, list. So let's see uh, what we do uh, with Luis on the next uh, slide. Luis is challenging us. Um, he has his life experiences. Uh, he goes to Mexico to take care of his family. He gets lost to follow up and he comes back uh, sometime later with a high viral load. Now, what he tells us is actually incredibly typical of the stories that many of our patients tell us uh, in our practice in New York City. Uh, we have many patients from Central and South America and the Caribbean, uh, and frequently they end up delayed uh, and they run out of medications or they'll start taking half doses to make their medications last, which is the worst thing that you could do because you end up with suboptimal dosing uh, and drug levels. Um, and here he was cycled on whatever he was able to access, uh, multiple different antiretroviral regimens. He could not take anything more than a few months at a time. So he comes back to us with a viral load of over 10,000. Uh, his CD4 count is still relatively well preserved, but he has a number of mutations on board. We know that with a K103N, he must have been on uh, most likely a Favarin at one point. Uh, we certainly know that he has backbone resistance, K60-Varvar and M184V. He has a mixture which shows intermittent adherence as well as integrase inhibitor uh, mutations. Now, what do we do with him at this point? So Luis, unfortunately, has moved into that last category of multi-drug resistant HIV. Uh, first, based on uh, some of adherence at the beginning, then based on having intolerance, and then based on his life experience that really prevented him from engaging with us in a stable fashion. So typical patients, very complex. Um, where do we go from here? So this is where Luis fits in. Um, we know that uh, at least, depending on the study, one in five people living with HIV in the United States are not virally suppressed. And of those, there is a percent that 
cannot be virally suppressed with our traditional antiretroviral therapy. What does that mean? We know that there's uncontrolled inflammation. We know that low CD4 count has a very strong association with other comorbid conditions. And we know that our patients who are not biologically suppressed use up and need a lot more healthcare resources. So from all of these uh, different things, we know that it's very, very difficult uh, to manage some of these patients. It's much more challenging. And, and it's very unusual for them to be able to still take a single tablet uh, regimen. So heavily treatment experienced patients or people living with HIV, not very common, but when you look at the US or you look at Europe, they are somewhere around eight to 10 or 11%. So not too small, not a large percent, but still, again, they take up the bulk of our resources and our focus in trying to get them virologically suppressed. So what is our strategy? The DHHS guidelines tells us that you really should look to put together a new regimen with multiple different classes and preferably with agents with new mechanism of action rather than recycling some of the things that the patients were on. Clearly trying to use our genotype and our phenotype in order to help us is key because sometimes we can possibly recycle some older agent if there's still susceptibility. So we could see here, we have a number of different ways to craft some regimens. The most important thing that I would like to stress, you need expert consultation. Almost always, these are very challenging patients, and if they struggled with one pill once a day, they will absolutely struggle with a regimen we'll put together because it'll be unusual if we can give them one pill once a day. Very unusual. Or maybe a cabrolpivirine injectable alone. Very unusual because, again, they're in a category of a heavily treatment experienced uh, person living with HIV. So we could see putting here, uh, depending on boosted PIs and all of that, if there's sort of resistance light. But if they're not resistance light, they move towards that other side of the slide. And that's where we start talking about uh, the infusion with ibilizumab. There is interest in making it a subcutaneous, possibly an intramuscular delivery. More to come. That's investigational. Certainly oral fostemsevir. Uh, and of course, lenacapavir, that is a capsid inhibitor that's available both oral as well as subcutaneous and long uh, acting. Um, so it's important for us to think, at least in the United States, for something like lenacapavir. Our FDA approval around lenacapavir is when we cannot put together a regimen for virologic suppression, and I'm paraphrasing here. Um, because of intolerance, safety considerations, or resistance. So maybe moving back to when he told us he cannot tolerate boosted darunavir, that might have been a good time for us to maybe consider doravirine, fixed-dose tablet, or taking out the boosted PI and maybe substituting in lenacapavir due to intolerance, not just 
for resistance consideration. So that's what makes lenacapavir a very flexible addition to our armamentarium of antiretrovirals. So I think we could talk about this for some time, uh, but I think I want to turn it over to Debbie uh, and uh, maybe put all of this together. Well, thank you, Serana. I think that when we talk about cases of individuals like Louise, uh, it's really not as far-fetched as some people may think. And as I thought about his case, you know, in the beginning, his motivation to be on PrEP, I think we also have to realize that he's going to need um, some counseling. Maybe he's upset. Maybe he's angry with himself because this was preventable. Uh, he needed to have some strategy to keep him retained, okay, in PrEP. And because when someone has been on PrEP for six years, and maybe they were in a meaningful relationship, maybe they didn't know life happens. And we have to have the other social support for this individual. Now that he has become HIV positive, uh, again, we're now dealing with another potential barrier to him having success. And as Serrano talked about, about the potential complexity of people who have multi-drug resistance and a heavily treatment experience, when we begin to lay out the options for them, some people have several potential regimens that they can take to give back to undetectable. And we have to encourage individuals, the past is the past, don't beat yourself up, let's move forward. Uh, because this is achievable. This is, a, this is something that we can accomplish together. And then for some individuals, they really don't have many regimens that we can construct for them. And we involve them in the process if they're willing to look. We want to uh, encourage them that, yes, stay on this new regimen until something else comes along, uh, because we may certainly be able to simplify this for you. And in Louise's case, because we did not have any labs other than uh, a positive and then a confirmed HIV, you know, fourth generation test, and we did rapid start with him, yes, we would encourage him that once we get back some results, yes, as Serrano already said, we may be able to simplify your regimen and we may be able to get you down to a smaller a tablet. Uh, we want to use the DHHS guidelines that are recommended as we are managing people who have HIV. And in the guidelines, when we talked about that question about what to go to for an individual who was not on CAB LA, when you see what to start and talked about an individual who has rapid start, uh, Big FTAP is the only regimen that's recommended in the guidelines for rapid initiation, of course, with no uh, available lab. So that's why it becomes uh, important. And when we are uh, talking about injectable prep, we want to have what we call this timely recognition and identification of people who have biologic breakthrough. And as I think about his case, if he had just been on oral prep and was struggling with adherence and had the typical acute HIV syndrome, many people don't identify a flu-like symptoms with having HIV. He may have been lulled into a false sense of security, and sometimes people read information on their own or they 
begin to skip doses or they begin to interpret, okay, what they think the literature says, and then they, of course, do themselves more harm than they mean to. So when he had his acute infection, and if he did have flu-like symptoms, it may have been, you know, a month after he saw you last and didn't think anything of it. And then he missed his follow-up appointment. But then he comes and he talks about he was struggling and he gets switched to, to uh, long-acting uh, capitagravir. And then it becomes much more difficult to identify the potential for symptoms. Now, in the guidelines, it talks about that long-acting capitagravir may be present for up to four years uh, detectable levels in the blood. So again, we don't want ourselves as clinicians okay, to be lulled into a false sense of, oh, I wonder if this person really has HIV. So we had an inconclusive test. We had a rapid positive and then an indeterminate confirmatory, but then he had that low-level single-digit HIV RNA. So we do want to initiate ART uh, based on the current guidelines. And then to just confirm with the patient that this is the new goal of therapy now. When we implement ART switching strategies, we always want to base it not just on the resistance test, but also on antiretroviral therapy history. You know, in some resource challenged communities or settings, we may not have the availability to have historical resistance tests. And sometimes an individual may not quite remember what they were on. You can just ask people sometimes, you know, when did you start treatment? What was the color of that pill? How many times a day did you take it? We have to have a lot of education with patients when they say, well, I've never been on that pill. I've never been on that pill. Why can't I take that one? And then you're talking about cross-resistance. So when we think about the individual who has been on both a fixed-dose tablet of two nukes and has been on a single injectable regimen for PrEP, who's now been exposed to these two classes, yes, there is the great possibility of cross-resistance if they should develop any kind of mutations. And when we want to help this young individual who is just in his 30s live the best life possible, I encourage them, yes, you know, take your medication, something better is going to come along, and garner some support. Uh, don't go through this journey alone. All right, so our SMART goals, use the DHHS guideline recommended protocols for HIV testing and monitoring in all patients taking oral and injectable PrEP to achieve timely identification of breakthrough HIV and limit drug resistance. Second, initiate empiric ART using guideline recommended regimens in all patients with confirmed PrEP breakthrough acute HIV infection. And then thirdly, implement ART switching strategies based on drug history and resistance testing to overcome drug resistance in patients with HIV. Check out uh, CME Outfitters' other activities in the CEMO briefcase. In this first series, it talks about HIV and substance use disorders, addressing the barriers to viral suppression. And as Serana has already alluded, uh, um, alluded to, there can be many. The second in the series here is the team approach to addressing comorbidities in aging populations of persons living with HIV. You know, when we talked about Louise and what regimen would we select for him, you know, I thought about 
the older patient. I thought about the patient who comes to us with comorbidities, the person that we have to consider, you know, my gosh, they have hypertension, diabetes, dyslipidemia, seizure disorder, uh, or maybe they are on gender-affirming hormone therapy. That wouldn't be unheard of. And they may have a renal or liver abnormalities that we now have to consider when we're constructing this new regimen. And then it doesn't become as simple or straightforward as it might have been. And then our third CEO briefcase is ART for people living with HIV who are pregnant or of childbearing potential. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Dr. Sharana Sigamora. That was just a phenomenal presentation about individuals who become HIV positive. I want to thank CME Outfitters on behalf of myself and Dr. Sigamora for the opportunity to put on such an activity.